0: Jenny Bhatt is a writer, literary translator, and book critic. Her latest translation is the Shehnai Virtuoso and Other Stories by Ketu, the pioneer of modern Gujarati short story. She has taught creative writing at Writing Workshops Dallas and the Pan America Emerging Voices Fellowship Program. She resides in the Dallas, Texas area and is currently a PhD student of literature at the University of Texas at Dallas. You can find her at uh, jennibhatwriter.com You can sign up for her popular free newsletters, We Are All Translators, and uh, Historical Fiction Craft Notes. In this episode, uh, she spoke about her writing, publishing her work, translations, contemporary Gujarati literature, the book, Shainai Virtuoso, the writer, Dhoom Ketu, and his contribution to Gujarati literature. Please share your feedback on this episode, either on the Spotify app or through the link provided in the show notes. You can follow Harshaniam Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or search any of your favorite podcasting apps. Welcome to our podcast, Harshaniam Jenny. Lovely to have you with us today.
1: Thank you, Anil. I, I, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, I've enjoyed listening to previous episodes and I look forward to talking with you.
0: So you wrote your first short story at the age of 10.
1: Yeah I mean that you know so I was in boarding school at the time and uh, you know we were reading all the usual it was an English boarding school you were reading all the usual stuff and my English literature teacher she found out about this children's short story competition it was in Femina India and Femina India then was a much different magazine than it is now. It, it was not a fashion magazine, you know. It was truly a, a feminism and a women's uh, magazine. And so she asked me, you know, she said, I think you should you should write a short story for this competition. And she helped me with, you know, okay, it's this many words. Here are the four topics. Pick one. And I picked um, the only somewhat sci-fi-ish, fantasy-ish topic, which was, Uh, called, I mean, they had given us the prompt. It was called Robots Who Wrote Poetry. And I was just fascinated by this idea of robots writing poetry. And I think, you know, it's hard because I don't, I can't exactly recall what I must have been reading at the time, but I I have a feeling because I know what I wrote in the story that I was influenced at that time by probably H.G. Wells because I think I'd read some of, you know, his abridged short stories as a child. And I think I'd been fascinated by that. So anyway, so I wrote that and um, my teacher sent it off for me because obviously I had no stamps or anything like that. And um, at the end of the semester term, I found out that I had won uh, the competition and I had won a prize of rupees 75. Oh, that's great. Which which at that time, you know, we're talking early 80s. It was a lot of money. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, you know, to me, that was very formative because... Not only did I not know that I could write a short story, but then I won some money for it, that was pretty much my fate was sealed. I went around telling everybody I was going to be a writer. You know, that was it. <laughs> so
0: Then, uh, a career race, uh, you're an engineer.
1: Yes, yes. Well, so what happens, as you know, I mean, you know, in Indian culture, um, you know, I went around telling everyone I was going to be a writer and my parents said, no, you're not. <laughs> that's not gonna happen. <laughs> so you know, they're like you can, it's a hobby. It's a great hobby. You can have it as a hobby, but you know, and, and as you know, if if your grades are good, you know, you're either going to be at least my generation. The choices we had, this was in the age before Google and before liberalisation. So we didn't know much out there. The choices you had was doctor or engineer, right? So that was it. So that's how I got into engineering.
0: I thought in Gujarat people get into finance, chartered accountancy, and all that, but I, th- I guess I'm wrong.
1: <laughs> no, no, you are you are not incorrect. My dad was a businessman himself, but with us, you know, we are four sisters and a brother. The brother is the youngest, so with us four sisters, I mean, again, my generation, the goal was to get a good education, good enough that you can find a good husband. That was really what the goal. So it was, you know, go get a good education so that you're respectable. there was never any intention that I was actually going to become an engineer professionally or I was actually going to have a job and which you know so
0: how could you come out of all that and uh, became a full-time writer translator now
1: it it was a long twisted road I mean what I mean by that is so obviously you know I went and studied and then I got uh, I, I left India and I was working in the UK and then the US now when you are working like as a, as a, you know, at that time I was still an Indian citizen. So um, you are hostage to your work permit situation, right? Which means you can't, you know, if, if your work permit says you are working as an engineer at this particular employer, you can't even switch employers. So it's not like I could have said, oh, I'm going to just switch to writing or whatever. Even once I had paid off my student loan and I had managed to save some money, um, I was not in a position to give up my job because it would mean leaving the country. And so I worked, you know, for the longest time. Um, I I did my writing on the side, if you like. And what I mean by that is uh, once I moved to the U.S. in um, 98 and I became aware of writing workshops and, and you know, communities of, of writers, what I would do is I would use my vacation time because I was single at the time, so I would use my vacation time or my weekends to go and take writing workshops, you know, um, so that I could continue working because that dream never went away of, you know, wanting to do it. And along the way, I did get the odd publication here and there, you know, maybe a short story, maybe an essay. And that that was it. But, you know, as I often say that you can't really be a slave to two masters. You can't do a full-time job and be a full-time writer. You just, even being a part-time writer is hard because you come home at the end of the day or the weekend and you have other things to do at home or you just want to just collapse and relax, you know? Um, So, I mean, I I reached a point after the age of 40 when I thought, uh, you know, it it was really my mother's passing away that, uh, that became an impetus because before she passed away, She and I had been discussing a potential translation project uh, of one of her favorite uh, Gujarati writers. So she had two or three favorite Gujarati writers that she read often and shared stories with us. And she really, you know, of of all my siblings, I am the only one who learned to read and write in Gujarati because we all went to English schools but I asked her to teach me so I could read her stash of books. That's how it, it started when I was younger. And so she had taught me to read and write so I could read her books at home uh, because where we lived, we didn't have libraries with English books that I could go and get, right? So anyways, so um, so she and I had been talking about this translation project. And then, of course, you know, she her sudden passing away meant that the project never happened because I kept putting it off. I was like, no, i got to do my own writing first, and then I'll translate somebody else's work i want to do my own stuff you know anyways and so when she passed away i inherited her books and you know there's a lot of soul searching you you can do when a parent who you know when a parent passes away and the soul searching in my case involved um thinking that i didn't want to get to a certain stage in my life where i look back and think that i haven't done what i wanted to get done right And so I was, again, at the time I was single, I um, thought, okay, let's take the leap. I gave myself a deadline of two years and said, if I don't manage to get a book written, I, I wasn't even thinking publication. I was just thinking I have to prove to myself that I can write a book length project. And so I told myself, okay, let me give myself two years. If I do it in two years, all well and good. If not, no. But in order to do so, because I had given up my job, I couldn't continue to live in the U.S. because, you know, rent and everything else (laughs) expenses are—you can't. So I, I did—I moved back in 2014 to Ahmedabad, where my my father still lives, and my brother, and I. I decided to stay for a couple years to do the one book, my book. Well, that turned into because I inherited my mother's library, small personal library of all her books, and so that two years turned into like six years. And I ended up doing two books. Uh, One was the translation that we're going to talk about. And then the other was my own um, story collection. You can make your savings, your US dollar savings can go a longer way in India. Because I was able to put my savings into a fixed deposit and live off the interest, quite frankly. So that was how I did it.
0: You got them published. That's a bigger achievement, right, actually.
1: Yeah, well, it is. A, you know what? You make a very good point, let me tell you. I ought to just write a whole essay on the publication aspect because I always tell people writing is one thing and publishing is another. They're not the same thing. And to your point about the publication journey for both of these books, that was not straightforward. Yeah, well, so, I, I mean, so when I started, when I finished my own short story collection, uh, which is which came out in 2020, uh, in the US, the titled Each of Us Killers. Um, I, when I started sending it around, right, to publishers and um, agents. And initially I was focused just because I was sitting in India at the time. I was like, I'll send it to Indian publishers. And pretty much everybody told me it's good, but, you know, short story collections don't sell. Not unless they're translations. So they don't sell. So it's good, but if you have a novel, let us know. I did, however, I did have very difficult um potential interactions you know that with with two or three smaller publishers and then i had to step away from them because i was like this is not working the way it should be working and it's too much stress for me so i stepped away and so it ended up after uh, after signing two contracts three contracts i stepped away from the book, from that and i almost put the book away i literally put the my own book away and what had happened was i had sent that that book to an Indian agent, uh, Kanishka Gupta. And in that, in my bio, I had just briefly mentioned, oh, I also do some translation work. He called me back like in a half an hour saying, we'll talk about your book later. Tell me about the translation. Okay,
0: yeah. You know,
1: because I think at that time, and even now, Gujarati to English translations are very rare. And so he wanted to know more about that. And I was like, okay, well, here it is. I've got three stories. I haven't done them all Um, And so it ended up that even though I'd written my own book first, what, what I contracted for sure, definitively with HarperCollins India was the translation. Um, And then my own book, as I said, I put it away. I was like, forget it. This is just, it's jinxed. I'm not getting anywhere with it. But what happened was I published, yeah, it was just that, but I had an essay published in 2018 at uh Long reads which is which was run in in the US at the time and it was a and it basically was a, a, an essay about my writing journey the editor had reached out because she saw something i tweeted and said would you write about it and i wrote about my you know how i moved from corporate america to become a full time writer and everything and that essay did go viral and lots of people read it and shared it and then a publisher in the US reached out to me and said hey you mentioned a book in your essay and um uh, you know, I, I'm guessing you already have a publisher, but if not, I'd be interested. <laughs> and so then, like, I wasn't even looking for a publisher at that point, but that essay was a way that I connected with that publisher. And then the book came out in 2020. So that's how that, you know, started.
0: Yeah, this uh, translation, uh, the book that we are going to talk about, uh, got published in India first, right? And then then somehow it reached will really Wentz.
1: So what happened was, you know, Kanishka, my agent, um, as I said, you know, he called, he was interested in the translation. I sent him the three stories. Uh, I told him it was Dhumketu, who was like known as the pioneer of the Gujarati, the modern Gujarati short story. Uh, and Dhumketu had written some 600 stories and all of this, you know, and he got very excited. He says, well, I'm going to send it to all the big publishers in India, right? And so he did. And HarperCollins India, uh, Rahul Soni there, the editor, who happens to be a translator himself, a very good translator, um, he he was interested. And then he and I talked on the phone and I said, well, I'm a first time translator, but I'm also a short story writer and I've grown up listening to them. So we had a good conversation about it. And then that's how that went forward. Now, what some people don't know is that generally in India, when a publisher takes the uh, you know signs with you for a translation, they prefer to take global rights for the book. And the reason they do that is so that they can then sell the book to other regions, right? That's how they, quite frankly, that's how they recoup, recoup their money because translations, even in India, people may think it's, they sell very well, but they don't sell that well, even in India. And so a publisher takes global rights so that they can then sell it to other parts of the world hopefully to get it published in other parts of the world. And that's how they make some of the money. And so I I understand the economics of that. So I had given HarperCollins the global rights for Zunketu. And when I left India to come back to the U.S. and I moved to the Dallas uh, area, um, and Will Evans is such a force in publishing and in translation. I mean, he's known globally and he's right here in Dallas. And so I... Yeah, so I reached out to Rahul and I just mentioned it. I said, you know, I'm I'm in Dallas. There's Will Evans right here. He publishes translations and but guess what? They don't they've never published any South Asian literature before. Uh so here's an opportunity and I just you know, I just passed on Will Evans's number and details and from there, you know, Will Evans and Rahul Sony, the two talked. Um, I think they made some kind of deal. They went through a bunch of other translations as well because Will Evans published a couple more after that i think um south asian but i think my my work my, my translation was the first south asian translation that was published at deep bellum it was the first gujarati to english translation ever to be published in the us um so and, and of course it's the first ever of Thumketu himself so you know there's a lot of firsts with the book um, and it's my first ever translation. But yeah, that's how the whole Will Evans connection happens.
0: Please uh, uh, tell us about uh, Jenny Bhatt, the reader.
1: Oh, the reader, yeah. Well, um, as we were talking just before the podcast started, you know, I do have a collection of books, and I, you know, growing up in India, My reading was primarily what happened at the boarding school because we had, we did have a small library there. At home, I didn't have as much access to English, um, books because I was studying in English. I read in English, but I had access to my mother's Gujarati literature and she had her own books and she would get the periodicals, the journals at the time. Um, and so I had to, I had to pester her to teach me to read Gujarati, right? So that I could read and of course I mean as you know if you because some of the scripts are similar if you can read and write in Hindi and Marathi then Gujarati is not that hard especially if you speak the language and obviously because I was in the state of Maharashtra I grew up in Bombay uh, and I went to boarding school in Bombay we studied both Hindi and Marathi the state language right so I was already multilingual in that sense Bombay very multilingual and then at home I have the Gujarati so I was reading all of those texts and and whatever I could lay my hands on as a reader um now as I grew older and had access to books especially once I left India and I had access to books in the UK and the US um obviously my my reading expanded um but I've always been drawn to historical fiction um I I just as a reader always been drawn to it um always been drawn to magical realism, because as you know, a lot of the folk tales and folk stories in India, it, magical realism is just a, for centuries, right? And it's like, I remember, you know, my mother would tell us a story, and, and suddenly there would be a ghost as one of the characters, and the ghost would come, do something, and go away, and I'd be like, wait, 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 you've got a ghost in the story, what happened there? And, and she'd be like, what's so, what's so funny about, what's so strange about that? You know, that's just the way it is. That's part of life, you know. I mean, we always – she would always say that, you know – I mean, she believed that ghosts even existed in the real world, right, for her. And she would believe that when someone dies, if they have unfinished business, they don't leave. They're, they're here. They want to get that business finished. And so anyway, so we've grown up with all of that. So um, for me, historical fiction and magical realism together have always been a big draw. So, definitely, you know, the Latin American uh, writers, when we look in the global stage, you know, Marquez and Borges, um, definitely, because, this, you know, I feel like there's an affinity, a similarity with South Asian literature, right? Because they write these big, sprawling sagas and long, digressive narratives and stories with magical realism all just included. So definitely, yeah, that has been my sweet spot with reading as a reader.
0: Experientially, how do you differentiate uh, between writing and translation?
1: Very obvious distinction for me uh, of the language, right? Because I write in English and although I'm translating into English, I'm obviously encountering the uh, source text in the original language first, right? So, I mean... Just on the surface, it's the, the languages, but otherwise, you know, the more that I translate, and I probably would not have uh, not have described it in this way, way back when I first started translating. But now, having been do- having doing it for you know uh, a number of years now, to me, translation is also a form of creative writing. So, you know, it's very much to me that, you know, you take a text, um, but you have to think in terms of just all the fiction techniques, the craft techniques that you would think about when you are translating or writing your own fiction as well. So I find that I approached very much even the Dungetu translation that I did with the short stories because I had just finished my own short story collection and I had you know, spent a lot of time thinking about all those craft elements of plot and character and voice and point of view and pacing and narrative, and you know, narrator and all of this. I, I, that was my immediate way of thinking and approaching the text uh, when I was translating as well. Of course, that said, the one, um, I find that I am a closer reader of the source text right, as a translator than I am sometimes of even my own text so I actually need somebody else to do a close reading of my text of what I've written and and help me see what I might have missed or what I need to change but with the translation you approach it, your first approach to the translation is as a very close reader of the text you are at the unit level of the single word as opposed to even the sentence, right? So so I do think that, for me, that does make a difference. Now, that said, being a close reader of a translation, I believe, makes me a better writer. Because it makes me question every word choice. It makes me question sentence structures when I'm writing it makes me understand how I'm doing managing my pacing and and point of view and things like that better. So I do feel the translation actually has helped me become a better writer.
0: Now on the flip side, uh, don't you feel uh, being a writer um, translation, don't you feel a bit constrained?
1: No, no. You know, it's fascinating you say that because, um, so I just started, a. let me let me share an example of why I don't think it is constrained. Um, I started a PhD at the university here just this August. Okay. And my focus is on translation. And so this semester, we've been taking a translation workshop. And one of the very first set of exercises that our professor, who is a very well-known translator himself, Professor Sean Cotter, who was also published by Deep Bellum. Solenoid. Yeah, solenoid, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you know, because, uh, Will Evans must have mentioned that to you, right? Because that's one of his big books of, well, yeah, it's huge. And it's very, it's a very tricky book to translate. You know, it, it was, um, Professor Carter says it was his, uh, pandemic project. Um, right. So anyway, so, but, so what Professor Carter made us do, one of the first, um, set of exercises was what, you know, the French call it the Olipo, uh, technique where, they write within a certain constraint. We're not even talking translation right now. We're talking about the Aleppo method um, as a way of writing within a constraint. And the reason you do that is because when you are writing within specific constraints, you have to find other ways to be creative. You have to look for other creative possibilities. And so actually writing in the Aleppo method can make you creative in other ways because you're forced to find other things. Um, one very good example is Raymond Quineau, a French writer who who wrote this book called Exercises in Style, where he wrote just the same, very same piece of flash fiction, if you like, the short story. And he wrote it like in more than 100 different ways. So the restriction for him was you have to just tell this story, this one story, but you have to find many as many ways of telling it as you can. And so he did this, Raymond Quino, it's a classic book. And I I recommend that book for any translator, any writer, really. Now, so what I'm I'm coming back to your question about, you know, is translation a constraint? No, because I find that when you are translating, yes, you are restricted to this original text, right? You're not going to suddenly make a whole different story out of it. And you are restricted to certain facts and details that the writer, original writer, has. But to bring it into another language, because there isn't a uh, direct equivalent for everything, right? That alone is a different, a certain kind of creativity on the page. And, And you have to, it's a different kind of creativity than you have as a writer who has a blank page and creates from scratch. That's a different kind of creativity. But to take somebody else's work, bring it into another language, also requires creativity because you're not just translating from language A to language B. You're not just interposing words. You have to create the whole uh, mood and the whole, uh, you have to understand the author's intention. You have to understand the sociology of that work. You know, so there's a whole, the cultural nuances, you know. So I find that it's a different kind of creativity.
0: Yes. And, uh, you teach creative writing too. What is the mode of teaching?
1: Well, so when I teach, I I just stopped teaching in August. That was my last workshop. Um, But I was teaching uh, because I started teaching in the pandemic. And so it started online uh, because we had no other way to do that. Um, So it started online, but I do, I I have taught in-person workshops as well. And um, so it was a blend. It was the mode of teaching was primarily both online as well as the in-person uh, workshops, um, and my focus was on fiction. So I taught, um, and and again within that I focused more and more. I started out teaching fiction, general fiction, but then I started focusing more and more on historical fiction and magical realism, because those are my, you know, those are areas that I have been spending so much of my time reading and 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 working on. So I just felt like that's where I wanted to focus. And so I stopped teaching those, though, because I'm full-time in the PhD program now. And so I stopped teaching them in August before I started the PhD program. But as part of the PhD program, I now teach first-year undergrads writing. So, you know, I haven't stopped teaching. It's different. It's rhetoric. I'm teaching them rhetoric. And so that we're writing nonfiction. Uh, but it's still writing. They, you still have to have a level of creativity. So,
0: so what's uh, your thesis uh, going to be on...
1: Oh, I haven't finalized that yet um, because I'm in the first semester. haven't finalized, but it's going to be something related to either historical fiction or Gujarati literature, one of the two.
0: You have a wonderful website, lot of resources for writers and translators. You also run weekly newsletters.
1: Um, they are on a bit of a hiatus right now because with this being my first semester, I, I want to focus my attention on just getting my PhD off the ground, but I'm going to go back to those. So one of the newsletters is called We Are All Translators, um, and that focuses naturally on translation. And it's where I share um, thoughts of, on, on the craft of translation, the art of translation. So I go into topics like uh, Lawrence Benuti's foreignization versus domestication, for example. Uh, or you know uh, topics like the translator's note, the translator's introduction to a text because I love those, um, but everybody approaches it, but everybody approaches it differently
0: Forewords and afterwards from translators they're really nice I think every translated uh, fiction ought to have them
1: absolutely yeah and, and but there are different theories you know some people prefer to not do that at the beginning they'll put it as an afterword I know like Daisy Rockwell has done that uh, some people don't like to influence the reader in any way so they prefer not to have that at all but you know for the most part I think uh, translators do that now more so than they did before um, so yeah so I so those are the kinds of topics that I get into and now that I am in my PhD program I'll and once I kick that back off again The we are all Translators newsletter i'll be adding more stuff based on what i'm also you know discussing and working on in my own translation workshops now um so that that's one thing the other newsletter i started just at the beginning of this year and that's historical fiction craft notes and that's where i because i wanted what i knew i was going to stop teaching um you know, the historical fiction workshops, but I wanted a way to stay connected with the topic and to continue staying connected with my students who had taken workshops with me. Um, And they'd all said, oh, you know, it would be great if you could do a newsletter so we can continue, you know. Um, And anyways, it gives me a chance to sort out things in my head about Historical fiction. So, um, so that's the second newsletter. And we talk about, I mean, that it's very craft-focused. The title itself says Historical Fiction Craft Notes. And so I talk a lot about the craft of historical fiction and research and the ethical responsibilities that we may or may not have when we're doing fiction, historicizing real events. Oh, sorry, fictionalizing <laughs> real events, not historicizing. Um, but yeah, so that, those are the two newsletters.
0: Uh, Talking of uh, historical fiction, uh, there is a novel in Kannada, Tejo Tungavadra, uh, wonderfully translated by Maitreyi Karnor. She has done a wonderful job. Have you read it?
1: I haven't read the book. Uh, It's been on my list, but I'm I'm connected with Maitreyi on uh, Facebook. So I am aware of uh, this novel and it is historical fiction, as you said. So I'm very interested to look at it at some point soon.
0: She has done a great job, she has mm-hmm. done a great job. I loved the book actually. I interviewed the writer too. I interviewed Vasudendra. he was in Hyderabad.
1: You know, he and I have uh, exchanged emails um, because he is writing his next book on the topic, on well, on a certain topic, I won't <laughs> divulge it, but he felt that I might have some information. So he and I just traded some emails.
0: There is this other initiative they see books.
1: Yeah, well, you know, so it sounded for me that was a pandemic project because, you know, um, what happened. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how it started, what it is, and why it ended. Um, in twenty twenty, I had two books coming out right in the my first two books, my first book of, of my own fiction, and my first translation. At the time, nobody knew that there was going to be a global pandemic, right? and so my plan had been i was going to launch my own book in the us then go to india launch my own book there none of it happened and um i found that there were a lot of other writers like me in the same boat because what happened was the industry and publishers were all trying to figure out this new what what this new normal right because you you didn't have as many book events you didn't have literary festivals and People were not able to figure out how to get book reviews done and all of this was going on. And so the it's hard enough when you are, you know, what's called a minority writer in the U.S., meaning you're writing for a specific community or from a specific community. Then to add to that, my book that came out was an independent press. It wasn't like the top big five publishers in the U.S. And then you had the pandemic. And so, you know, that may, that just complicated everything for me with my first book. And I thought, well, I could sit here and get mad or upset about it, or I could do something about it. And as I said, I had other friends I found who were in the same boat. And same thing with the translation. You know, it's coming out in India. I wasn't even able to go there and do any events or anything, you know. Uh, so I started Desi Books. It was a podcast, much like you uh, have your podcast. And it began as a podcast where um, every week or so I would interview somebody, and it wasn't just translation focused, but see meaning it was South Asian literature. And I didn't restrict, I did not restrict it to any global region. I said South Asian, meaning you are South Asian origin, but you could be anywhere in the world. Um, and so I interviewed writers, uh, South Asian writers from Australia, and UK, and India, and everywhere. I was talking to people everywhere. And I was trying to spotlight their books. Um, and so what happened was then it evolved into, uh, these magazine type, e-zine type, um, posts on the Desi Books website. That went to a more of a kind of, you know, uh, video panel discussions that we started to have with that then it became the, the a book review site and I was paying book reviewers out of my own pocket. And so it became, it, it became this, it started to grow a lot where it was almost my full-time thing, but nobody was paying me to do it. I wasn't getting paid to do it. It was, in fact, I was putting money into it. I, you know, I was putting my money and my time into it, but not getting any, and, and you know, that can, you can't sustain that for too long because you have to earn a living as well. So, um, and so I had to go back to the teaching and uh, and then at once I knew that I was going to be doing the PhD program um, this fall, I knew that I would have to wrap that up because there's no way I could have done everything. And so I had to send out a note at the end of January this year uh, telling people that, uh, you know, the the archives will always live out there. I still pay for the archives to stay there on the website. Um, but that I won't be actively doing any more work on there. The podcast episodes are still out there. Um, we did like in podcast episodes, there's about eight, almost 90 episodes out there now. Yeah, um, and then there's like gazillion things on the website as well. But yeah, I had to I had to shut it down because I I it's not sustainable when it's just all your own time and money going into it, right? And I did have a couple, a couple of good people did, uh, contribute because I had started, um, saying that I would open things up for very reasonably priced book related ads. And so I had some writers who stepped up and say, yes, I, you know, I'm willing to pay for an ad. And so that had kind of started, but then, you know, again, I didn't continue. I, it just it would have taken more time. Um, yeah. So that's where it was. Yeah. Yeah, I mean we by the time we got done just so you, you your uh, readers are aware because you know by the time we got done um more than 180 individual authors poets and translators had been featured 23 book reviewers wrote for Daisy Books I had 23 book reviewers that I paid not a lot it was a modest honorarium but I paid them and they wrote for Daisy Books and we featured more than 1200 books in that time oh, period,
0: that's 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 a great contribution. I that think. that was that a lot, and it
1: took a lot of time and effort. At, yeah.
0: Now this year uh, you're a jury member at the Penheim Translation Prize.
1: So this is my second year on the jury. They they when when they ask uh, somebody to join the jury, it's a two year term. So I started my first time was last year, and then now this year, and I think they also have a rule where if you been active on the jury, then you can't submit for the prize for another two years. So I'm basically out of the running, you know, for four years. I can, you know, I have not um, basically cannot submit to the prize for four years. But I thought that's fine. I thought it would be when, when they asked me last year, I thought this would be a good way for me to get to A, meet other translators, because all the people on the jury are translators. There's a jury chair, um, who was also the chair for two years, and his name's Nicholas, uh, Nick Glastonbury, he's also a translator um, from Turkish into English. And um, anyway, so yeah, I mean, what, for me, it was meeting other translators, it was understanding the process of what is that, and what is the mystery, what goes on behind the scenes? How are these decisions made? Um, because in my case, you know, with the of book, it wasn't even eligible for most awards. The reason being the original author is dead. A lot of the big name awards, you know, require the original author to be alive. So my book wasn't even eligible, right? But I still, I was curious, you know, what goes on behind the scenes. So anyways, so the process, uh, you know, they, they do have a great team at Pennheim because it's part of Pan America where they have somebody who does cull everything down to 200 or so submissions, then we all take turns to look at it, and then we get together as a group and we discuss the, the shortlist, if you like, right? To me, the most uh, interesting part of the process is when we get together to discuss the shortlist. And the shortlist is uh, anywhere, you know, like it could be 30, 35 or so um, entries. And they're from all over the world. And so we're all together, we're discussing it. A lot of times some of us will change our mind about a certain book once we've discussed it and some other translator has helped us see, oh, well, you know, did you consider this? Or, you know, I translate from this language as well and here's what I know about the author or the book or the translator, whatever, right? And so, and and then, then even technical aspects of the translation. So things like that will come to light. And it to me that, You know, that deliberation process can be anywhere from two to five hours, even. Um, And, you know, and this is after we've spent hours just separately on our own working through the entries, right? Um, But that interactive live dialogue debate process is very educational for me and stimulating because it's just a whole bunch of translators getting together to talk about translation, right? And it, uh, it, it is, it's amazing. And we, for the Pennheim anyways, we had certain criteria we wanted to make sure because we're looking at emerging translators more so than established ones, even though established, established translators are not, uh, restricted from submitting, of course. But we do look at, you know, are there people who would not, who publishers may not even look at if it wasn't for an award, right? Are there works? Are there works like that? Um, So we look at underrepresented uh, languages, underrepresented works, underrepresented regions, translators. And so just that whole process of going through uh, and understanding even what do we all think underrepresented means. What does that mean? Because there is a global translation pyramid. We know that European languages, translations from European languages into English is the big thing. But if you think even in underrepresented, you know, to a Western person in the publishing world, they may think of South Asian languages as underrepresented. Fair enough. But within South Asia, we have our own translation pyramid. We have certain languages that are at the top. And believe it or not, Gujarati is nowhere in the top 10. Right. For example, it's not. It is a greatly spoken language, but when it comes to translation, for various factors—not just any one reason—for various reasons, it is not even in the top ten. So um, you know, the top ten would be your your uh, Hindi, Bangla, Urdu, Malayalam, Tamil. So so anyway, so yeah, so that that's the that's been the process for Penheim, Now, uh, the other award that this year, I will be judging, which we, we haven't started the process yet, which is why when you asked, I said, you know, I, I can't speak much to it just yet. Um, but that that is focused specifically on South Asia, as you know, you, you know about it. Because you've had, you've had the, the co-founder, Priyamvada, on this um, podcast?
0: Both Priyamvada and Suchitra.
1: Both of them, yes. Okay, okay. Um, Priyamvada was one of the winners last year of the Penheim. Uh, so.
0: And even that book uh, got shortlisted for Alta stories of the true.
1: Correct. 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 Yes. Yes. So. Um, and, and so, yeah, so there, um, yeah, that's the, the new award, but yeah, the, I think just deep this being on the Penheim jury has certainly demystified for me to a certain extent. What's, involved in a literary award. And I can tell you, and my jury members, my co-jury members will also uh, readily agree, it is definitely not, you cannot say, even though you have so many jury members representing so many different languages and regions of the world coming together, you can never call a literary award uh, process entirely objective. It's never going to be entirely objective. We are human beings. There are certain biases. The only thing we can do is try to keep each other, um, each other, you know, try to help each other's blind spots uh, because nobody's intentionally being biased, but we can try to help each other's blind spots by saying, oh, but did you know this or did you consider this? So I think that helps uh, reduce some of the, the individual biases, but it it will never be an entirely objective process. And I think a lot of people don't under, don't know. I mean, I've always been conflicted about literary awards. I've written about this as well. I'm conflicted because one, there's all kinds of eligibility rules, and those sometimes disqualify a book from even being submitted. So that's number one. And that—that's everybody has eligibility rules, and certain books cannot even qualify because of those rules. Now I understand why awards have to have that; otherwise, it's you know, you have no rules. How does it work? But 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 the average lay reader doesn't understand that. So that's number one. For example, the Booker International. Okay, you know it was great that the very first South Asian book with Ketanji Shree's novel won, but you have to understand that the Booker has criteria. They have to have the book has to have been published in the UK with by a UK publisher. The book, uh, the UK publisher has to have a certain budget they are willing to commit to setting aside for promotion if the book gets shortlisted. Oh yeah, there's a budget. There's a very specific amount. Oh, it's not a, yeah. yeah, it's not okay. a small amount. Yeah. Um, the original author needs to be alive so there's all these criteria so there's all these criteria right and so I think the lay reader may not know that this and so for them they think oh well this book got uh, selected for this big prestigious award and you know that's great well yes it's great that that happened there are all kinds of reasons why that happened And that doesn't mean that there are not other good books out there that didn't win any awards. And as readers, if we are truly serious about literature and about our literary culture, it is up to us to look beyond the awards, to look at the literary landscape as a whole and try and find those other underappreciated, underrepresented gems that are out there. So anyways. So I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Digressions are always beautiful. As long as I am not doing it. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, to your point, you know, you asked me about literary awards and I'm just, I'm still, despite having been on a couple of uh, award juries now, I'm, I'm still conflicted about some of the things, but you know.
0: So before we get on to Gujarati literature and your works, uh, what advice uh, do you give to budding writers and translators?
1: I I don't feel I'm in a... I don't I don't I don't like to give advice. I can only... I'm more comfortable telling people what worked for me and what didn't work for me. Because I feel like, yeah, advice is hard because you don't know what where someone is in their writing journey. So I can tell you the number one thing that works for me is and that gave me a lot of peace of mind was when I finally figured out for myself, and I don't mean just at a theoretical level, but truly understood that writing and, and publishing are two separate things. That's the first thing I would say. And that, you know, that's one thing. The second thing that, and the more I do translation work that comes to me is that there are storytellers and there are writers. We have a lot of great storytellers, in our regional languages, right, I hate to use the word regional, but in our South Asian languages, they have wonderful stories. They may not have the best craft when it comes to writing. And so I want to make sure, it's. and I'm not saying one is better than the other. Sometimes a story is so good it will stand by itself as it is. But it behooves us um, whether we are, Being judicious readers or judicious jury members of an award to understand where a book is on that continuum of storytelling and writing, and then of course there are writers, there are books that 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 do a great job of both, which is why I say it's a continuum. It's not, you know, a binary. It's not that I'm saying you're either a storyteller or a writer. You can be both, and a book can be both things. But we, it behooves us to understand that better as as judicious readers and. And lovers of literature. Um, so those, those are some key things. And then I, I think there is absolutely, there's another continuum I talk about, which is the craft and the life experience continuum. Right. And I think that the best writers to me are the ones who have a certain life experience and a certain amount of craft. And then they bring that together. And I, th- I think there are some folks who just have a lot of great life experiences they may make great storytellers, but they're not necessarily writers. And then there are certain people who are at the peak of their craft. They are—they can play all kinds of games on the page. But as Zadie Smith has said, you can only play games on the page so far. Eventually, what comes through to the reader is great writer on the page, lovely language and use of words and everything. But what's, what's the substance that I take away from this? So I—I I, I tell. People, when I'm teaching, I tell them, you decide where you want to be on these continuums, where you want to be on the, uh, where you want to be in the writing and publishing continuum, because if you're more geared towards publishing, you have to understand what the market wants and, and work on that. Where you are on the storyteller versus writer continuum and where you are on the life experience and craft continuum. So to me, those are my three big things. As I said, there's no right answer. You decide where you want to be on those.
0: You have recommended one book for craft of writing already. And are there any other books that you recommend?
1: Oh, I have a ton of books, yeah. For, for writing craft, even translation craft. So on my website, I have a link that I just, you know, as I find books that I like, um, I put them in a list. Books that I've appreciated or liked for craft, for writing craft. Books that I've appreciated and liked for translation craft. And so I have the, the whole list Um this semester, I've been focusing more on books about translation craft uh, because of the work I'm doing through my PhD. And books that I've particularly um, enjoyed, these are now Western translators because that's kind of the focus at UTD. Uh, there's uh, a translator named Rosemary Waldrop, who's written a book called Lavish Absence. about It's, it's this hybrid memoir and translation craft book she translated um, this poet, Edward Jabez, uh, Egyptian who wrote in French. And she has written about that whole process of translating uh, Edward Jabez. And she goes down to the unit level of the word and explaining how she some of the choices she has made. So that's definitely one book for translation craft. Another one I've been reading is uh, Essays Two by Lydia Davis. And again, Lydia Davis is a famous translator of French into English, you know, with uh, Proust and Madame Bovary and all of these works. Very, very specific about translation craft, you know, like she will spend pages and pages talking about one sentence, how she translated that sentence and some of the choices. So yeah, those, those in terms of craft, there are some amazing books. Um, Rita Kothari, who teaches at Ashoka University and translates from Gujarati into English, had a memoir out, I believe it was late last year, and I have that, and I've been reading that, it's called Uneasy Translations, and she talks not just about her journey, you know, into the field, into translation, but also as an academic, because she teaches translation, how to do translation, she, te- you know, so she's a translator, she's an academic, she's a scholar, uh, she's written a lot about Gujarati literature, and now about Sindhi literature, she's she's um, she's originally uh, Cindy so she's writing about Cindy literature as well and so yeah that's another great um, it's not a craft book per se but it's about the translating life if you like the life of a translator, scholar, academic Um, and there's a lot to learn just from that
0: Now your views about uh, contemporary Gujarati literature
1: Yeah so you know there's a lot of controversial views about contemporary Gujarati literature. There is one school of thought that we don't have as much innovative works, as many innovative works coming out in contemporary Gujarati literature as we did potentially in the 60s and 70s. You know, arguably the most, the last innovative uh, writer we had was uh, Suresh Joshi in the 60s and 70s. And then after that, it's not that they've stopped writing. We still have Gujarati literature, but it's not uh, read as widely, or or tra- certainly not translated into other languages. You don't you see a lot of with Gujarati li- books. What you see is a lot of works being translated from other languages into Gujarati, right? But we don't see from Gujarati into other languages. I could I could count on the fingers of my two hands, the number of Gujarati translators doing professional translation into English today. There's not that many. There's not that many. So, you know, that that's one challenge. But then also, as I said, the actual contemporary Gujarati literature, you know, we have, obviously there are some big names, uh, Varsha Dalja. She's 18 now, uh, but she's written a, an amazing body of work. Um, very only maybe very rarely. Has, I mean, she's won Sahitya Academy awards, but she, you know, the Sahitya Academy had one or two of her works translated, and then they languished somewhere in a basement. Nobody knew about them. Uh, I, I mentioned Barshad Alja because I'm in the process of translating one of her biggest novels, which she wrote in her 70s, and it's uh, set during the independence struggle. And when you think about, you know, Mahatma Gandhi and Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the two people who were very instrumental in in the freedom struggle and India's partition, were both Gujarati. And we have yet to see a partition novel or an independence novel from Gujarat. She's written it. It's there. It's just not been translated now. It's it's a big book. I'll show you. Well, it's over there. It's a big book, and it's a lot of work to translate, but. It's an amazing novel. She, it spans seven decades of India's history from the 1920s onwards. So we do have some amazing contemporary writers, but nobody knows about them because they haven't been translated. Um, you know, there's uh, her, her sister is Ila Rupmeta, who also is a writer, amazing writer. Rita Kotari is one of her novels. Both of them, their father was a writer, well-known writer, uh, he wrote these swashbuckling adventure novels because Gujarat, as you know, is is by the sea, right by the ocean, and so we've had centuries of seafaring trade, and he wrote these seafaring novels that nobody knows about, right? So there's that. And then we have, you know, because Gujarati translation isn't happening quite as much, we have all these classics as well that haven't been translated. But coming back to your contemporary question, um, there are a couple of younger writers that I know of now in Gujarati literature um, who are focused more on theater and drama. But, you know, and I think that's the other thing. With, with Gujarati, even with contemporary Gujarati literature, so much of it it's still very theatre drama-driven, so it's not novel form, but it's very robust and thriving on the stage. If you if you go to Ahmedabad, you mentioned you travel to Ahmedabad. Next time you go, just look up in the local paper, and you'll see that there are plays being staged across the city almost every week. Yeah, I mean it's a very thriving, vibrant uh, thing that happens. You know. Um, there's, you know, even in contemporary Gujarati literature, there's also the Gujarati Ghazal. People don't know. People think of Ghazal as an Urdu uh, tradition. It does follow some of the same tropes or whatever other techniques, but it is a very much in the Gujarati language. It's a Gujarati Ghazal, and it's been happening for quite some time. So, you know, I think what is the challenge with contemporary Gujarati literature is just the lack of visibility. Uh, The publishers, there's, you know, a handful of uh, key publishers who control pretty much everything, and a lot of times the Gujarati writers themselves don't know what their rights are once they've had a book published. They don't even know whether they can then have it commissioned for translation or does the publisher own it. I had one Gujarati publisher, when I approached them, about a contemporary Gujarati novel for translation translation. Um, because I didn't know the author. So I approached them to say, can you connect me with the author? And they wanted 10,000 rupees just to connect me to the author. <laughs> and and okay, it may not be a huge amount, but I didn't even have a contract at the time. I had I was just trying to connect with the author to see if I could translate the book. I, I had not even talked to a publisher about it.
0: So there are no organizations which are working for... Uh... Translations of uh, Gujarati literature into English?
1: So there are Gujarati literary organizations. There's the Gujarati Sahitya Academy, there's the Gujarati Sahitya Parishad. And there are members and presidents and all kinds of people. Very, um, they they are mostly male centric, you know, um, but uh, they do not actively promote translation. For example, I mean, I had, I've done Dunketu, and neither of those organizations ever connected with me saying, hey, you know, or or you won't, I mean, so I don't, I I think that it's a, um, there is a complaint that the Gujarati literary industry can be very insular. And I think that happens with some other languages too, but it is very insular. But and what that does is it restricts the level of debate and discussion that can happen. Right? And so there was one time when I would say Gujarati literary culture was so thriving, so vibrant, we had so much literary criticism going on. We had I mean if you go and look at the Scientific Academy Awards in Gujarati language, you will find a lot of them are not necessarily for novels, they are for nonfiction. Therefore, literary criticism works. Yeah. And so that, was, that has been thriving. I was talking to Dr. Sachin Ketkar, who teaches at Baroda University. He is a translator into and from both Gujarati and Marathi. He was telling me one of his students, his doctoral students, yes. was, it was or is doing a research project where they are uncovering all these journals, literary periodicals, journals in Gujarati that are no longer publishing, obviously, they've all died out, but there are archives that reveal this thriving, vibrant discourse, literary criticism discourse that used to happen. Yeah. And it's all just, nobody knows, about. it's all just sitting there in archives at universities. So, I mean, it is a tragedy. Yeah. Anyways, yeah.
0: Let us talk about your books, uh, both. Uh, uh, to begin with, uh, your story collection, Each of Us Kill Us.
1: Um, to answer your question about my debut collection, um, I had just moved back to India when I started writing it. And 2014 was a very interesting time, uh, both for India and for Gujarat, because Narendra Modi had just become the prime minister in Delhi, and we had a new chief minister in Ahmedabad. So politically, there was a lot going on. And then for me, I had come gone back after a few decades to, like I'd visited, but I'd gone back to live there after a few decades. So there was all kinds of things for me. And then, um, as I mentioned before, I had given myself that period of two years that I wanted to write this book. And so that was one aspect, the fact of going back to India and encountering India in a different way after so many years and decades. The second aspect about the book was that almost, well, all the stories focus on work. All the fictional characters, the stories are about their job, their workplace, whether it's a housemaid or um, a a food stall owner, a street vendor, all of the stories. Because for me, after having given up my corporate career after decades, I was grappling with this whole, what is my identity now? Because my identity had been so wrapped up in my work. And so I was, you know, so, you know, with your first book, everything, it is your own preoccupations. You're not even sure if that book is going to be published and will it have any readers. So I was very focused. So the whole book is centered on, through the eyes of different stories and different fictional characters, on what work means to us. What are the challenges we might encounter in the workplace? Uh, Even the magical realism and historical fiction stories in there are also related to work. So for me, that that, that was that book. That was the book that I had to write at the time. And, you know, they say that you can have all kinds of amazing ideas for books in your head. But the book you write is the book you have to write. You have to get that written. For me, that was the first book that I had to get written. Now I've I'm, I'm moved on from short stories. I'm working on a novel, but that's what I had to write. So that was my first.
0: We will move on to your translation. That is Dhumketus, uh, The Shehnai so. The Indian edition is titled differently from American edition. Why the difference?
1: So when we chose the Indian title, Obviously, at the time we had, we didn't know whether we would get it published outside of India. And I remember the book was, we had planned the publication date to be around Navratri, which is the big dance uh, festival, right? That it, for, for right, right. And so of all the story titles, my editor, Rahul Soni, liked Ratno Dholi the best because we thought, it, it's about the toll. It's about this dolly player, doll player. And we thought it would give us a very interesting cover. You know, it was a love story. And so we thought, let's go with that. So that was the title of the Indian edition. When we decided, when we finally figured out, okay, yes, it's going to be published in the U.S., I was the one who said to Will Evans, my publisher here, I don't know about Ratno Dholi for the, for the American uh, audience. Even in India, because even in India, some people were pronouncing Ratno the wrong way. You know, they didn't know. They thought it was Ratno Dholi, meaning the nighttime Dholi dhol play, Ratno Dholi. Right, I said, no, no, the, the the Dhol player's name is Ratan. And, you know, Ratan becomes Ratno. So, So when we were doing it here i thought well let's stay with the theme of music because Thumketu, he had a lot of stories related to music and song and dance and so i looked for another title that had something related to music and so the Shehnai virtuoso um, is the one that we thought would be good because again it gives us something interesting to put on the cover and virtuoso people know what that means um, and Shehnai, is that Indian, very Indian instrument, of course, right? So, so Dunketu, um, he's actually, if you talk to people who are readers in Gujarati literature, they will tell you, oh, they know of him as this historical fiction writer. And he did. He wrote 26 historical fiction novels. Yeah, 26. He covered both the Gupta Yug and the Chaulukya Yug. The Gupta Yug is, you know, your, your, uh, the Ashoka, Maurya, all those right um the pre- the ancient uh kings. And then the Chawlukya Yug is particular Solanki uh kings, specific to Gujarat, right before the Muslims came and took over, right before all the Muslims took over. So he's written twenty six novels and uh very thoroughly researched. He's very good on historical fictions. So and naturally that was something I was drawn to. But when I started to translate him I felt Again, I mentioned, you know, my mother and I had been talking about translating his short stories because she loved his short stories. She didn't she was not a historical fiction person as much. She loved the short stories. So she uh, uh, so so I thought, okay to honor her in in her memory. And also when I started translating some kids, there was no idea in my head that I was going, honestly, I had no idea I was doing it. I was going to get it published. I started translating individual stories, and I would share them on WhatsApp with my family. And these would be stories we would remember from what she had told us. And I would say, oh, I just translated this because my nieces and nephews obviously can't read Gujarati, and nor can my sisters. And so I would just share. Oh, I translated a bit more today here. And so that's how it started, you know, the short stories. Then when the agent said, I'm interested in the short stories, can you send me something? That's when I seriously started looking. And then that's when I realized he has written, at least the ones that we know of, published more than 600 short stories across uh, 20-something volumes. There's a whole Dumketu Grantavali of his short stories. And that's when I realized, my mom had never told me this. She never said, oh, he's the pioneer of the modern Gujarati short story. Because she she was not like a literary person. She would not have known to say that. She just All she said was, he's the best short story writer in Gujarati literature. And you take that with a pinch of salt because it's your mother and you think, oh, it's just exaggeration. But then you realize, oh, my God, no, he did amazing, innovative things with the short story form in Gujarati literature at the time. He was himself. He he read in English. He translated from Bengali, from Bangla, and from English into Gujarati. He was very much about studying the craft of the short story. He wrote an introduction to his first short story collection, talking about the importance of the craft and why people have misconceptions about what a short story is and what it can do and what it can't do. And I mean, he gets deep into the craft a bit. So I'm reading him this all of this after. I've done my own short story collection and I'm thinking I have to translate his short stories. And so I tell Rahul, the the editor, yeah, I'll I'll come up with a best of, you know, we'll do a selection. Now I didn't realize, I would not advise this to any beginner translator, by the way, because I had to read all 600 stories to pick what I thought would be, you know, and how do you define best? What is best? My best is not the same as your best. So what I decided was I would pick one story from each of his collections that is representative of that collection, that I feel is representative of that collection, and also charts his evolution as a short story writer. That was my goal. And that, so that is what I did. So I didn't translate potentially, you know, what I, – I did not initially translate the post office. The, the, the story that is his most well-known that he himself has also translated into English somewhere. I don't have that version, but, um, so, you know, I, I didn't translate it, but then Rahul, the editor said, Hey, that's the most well-known. We can't not have it in there. You have to put it in there. And so I, I, that was the last one I translated, but I translated one from each volume, even though in one case, for example, one of the other editors at Harper kind of uh, pushed back saying, hey, this story and this story, the, the stories sound very similar in the sense that they're about the same theme about justice or miscarriage of justice. And we should just have one, you know, pick something else, please. And I said, no, this is about tracing his evolution as a writer. And I, I made a whole case to her. I said, look, in this earlier story about the miscarriage of justice, He's talking about taking revenge. His character is all about taking revenge. In the, the later story, when he is also an older writer, a more experienced human being and writer, the miscarriage of justice turns into more of an acceptance and instead of retribution. And I said that's important. It's important to for people who are interested in Dungezu as a writer and his, his evolution you know, of his craft as a writer. And so I, we, I ended up winning that and we kept both stories in there. So that's, yeah, that's how the whole Dumketu journey started for me.
0: Let's talk about the stories from the book. Uh, the post office uh, from the translation point of view. One is, you talked about Italian Eagle and the, the goldsmith's village poem.
1: With Dumketu's translation, especially because the author is such a towering figure in Gujarati literature, And because he's dead, so he's not there to defend himself or anything. I was, I could not bring myself to make any changes to his original text. I probably was too faithful, I think, knowing what I know about translation.
0: And that uh, Goldsmith's Village, uh, that poem again, uh, it's such a lovely symbolism for this story. It elevates the story. The Amrapali the way it's written, the character especially, it's a great character. Now, we have what is called the Devadasi system, right? Have you heard of it? Where they don't get married. Is it something similar to that Amrapali story or is it different?
1: Well, he does. I mean, the story is that about that conflict, right? That she's being told that she must not marry and she must be um, available to the nobility of the the Lichavis, and she is uh, pushing back. She wants her independence and her freedom. She even has to give up her son. The story is about her having to, you know. So, I mean, that is what it's about. Now, I will mention, I mean, the reason I end up always calling the story Amrapali, even though Dhunketu's title for the story is Atmana Asu, which means Tears of the Soul, is that he actually wrote a novel also about her the novel is called amrapali it it's part of the gupta yug historical fiction series that he did because she was from that era so he this is probably the only character i believe that he has written both a short story and a whole novel about
0: yeah the lovely symbolisms everywhere lovely images throughout the stories that i read it's a really beautifully written
1: was very much about the craft very much yeah and and um he did a lot of research his history okay I'll give you one example KM Munshi is the other big name in Gujarati fiction Rita Kothari and Abhijit Kothari translated his Patan Trilogy which is also set in ancient Gujarat medieval ancient Gujarat and um it covers the reign of I believe three kings one of the books in that trilogy Covers the reign of one of the most famous uh, kings, Sidraj. Okay, Sidraj. Donggyedu also has a novel about Sidraj. When you compare, when you compare Munshi and Donggyedu, Munshi went for more dramatization, sensationalization. He's got a lot of, you know, romance and sex, and because he was trying to appeal to the reader at the time, right? dung had some of those elements, but he was trying to be more about the history. He was historicizing real events. Oh, sorry, fictional. I keep saying that. He was fictionalizing events, but he had this sense of wanting to stay as true to the facts. Whereas Munshi altered the facts just a lot. (laughs) He changed a lot of things. So my point being that, Even with his historical fiction, Dhumketu was very careful of what he was portraying, how he was portraying it.
0: Now, what are the projects that you are currently working on, translation or writing?
1: So translation, uh, I'm working on Varsha Dalja's Crossroad. Um, An excerpt of that was published at Words Without Borders, so that crossroad is, it's a huge, it's a 600 plus page novel. Um, but it's an amazing novel. It is an amazing novel. It deserves to win lots of awards, personally speaking. Not because I'm <laughs> translating it, but I think just in general. And it did, it did in, in the Gujarati world, it did win awards. Um, so that's one project. Another project that I've been doing for years is another f- sort of writer who's a favorite of my mother's. Chabir Chand Meghani. Meghani uh, was one of these amazing writers. He gave up his job and everything to travel around the rural parts of Gujarat to gather all the folk tales, the oral folk tales, because they were getting lost. As industrialization and colonization, we were losing our oral traditions. And he felt terrible about that. So he traveled for years. He would he went around and collected all these different folk songs and folk tales and published them in books. I mean, he did a great service to Gujarati literature. And the only translations, selected translations into English of his work were done by his son, and they're out of print now. And his son was also a great, you know, he did a lot of work service to Gujarati literature. Um, one of his sons. He has three sons. But um, those folk tales. I grew up hearing those from my mother. We grew up. You know, my mother would tell us some of these folk tales, and so um, I, um, I I started translating him. I find it harder to translate him than to translate Bashar Dalja because his folk tales are written in a in dialects in different Gujarati dialects. Some of those words you can't even find in dictionaries. I have to go ask people. And so it's taken me longer. In fact, the very first Meghani story that I translated, I go back to it now and I cringe because I know I got something, a couple things wrong. But his language is also very beautiful because he's taking this from the oral tradition. So when you read the Gujarati, you can hear there's a rhythm, there's a cadence to the language. And it's very hard. I'm trying to figure out ways to bring it across into English. And he even has a lot of his stories, will have like snippets of the folk songs in there. And so I'm translating those. And again, the words, I like some of the words, there's no dictionary. I have to go hunting old dictionaries, very old dictionaries to find the words. So, anyway, so those are my two projects, keeps me busy. And then my own historical novel that I've been writing for a while, you know, that. I mean, I write it whenever I find time, but I've been researching it for like a decade now, so we'll see. The Crossroad uh, translation, yeah, that one, it, it should be out early part of next year. I hope to have it all finished. Um, but, you know, as I said, its um, it's got a huge set of characters. They've all got different voices. It spans seven decades, so, you know, times are changing. These people are growing older. And I want to make sure that I have that consistency of voice. That's the one thing that I'm making. Sh- I'm trying to make sure. And, uh, you know, but it's, a, it, yeah, so hopefully I of next year.
0: Finally, please uh, read a paragraph, both in Gujarati and in English.
1: Atmana Asu, that was the original title that he had. Vaishalina Santha Garma, Ajay Bhare machi Machirai Hati. Ketlag Vrid Rajpurusho. संतघागरा स्वच्छ आरसना पगतिया पर देसी गया हता केतलाक खुला मैदान मा पोत पोता पोताना रथनी दोरी हाथ मा राखी संतघागरा म थतो कोलाहल सांबडी रया हता जब्बर भाला हाथ मा धरी ने केतलाक जुवानो फावे तेम टहवता हता सभा मा गेर व्यवस्था हती कोई कोई सांबड़े तेम हतु नहीं जेने जेम पावे तेम that's just the first paragraph, but I'm going to read the English and then I'm going to highlight a couple of words. There was considerable chaos in Bashali's Ali's town hall today. Many elderly statesmen had sat themselves on the clean marble steps of the town hall. Many were in the open field, holding their chariot reins, listening to the uproar inside. Holding massive spears in their hands, many young men were strolling about as they liked. There was disorder in the assembly. It was as if no one was listening to anyone. Everyone talked however they liked. Now here, in this paragraph, in the first sentence itself, the uh, Dhunketu had a footnote for the word Santagar. Santagar is a very odd word. Even in Gujarati, people might not know what it is. So he put a footnote saying, Vaishali maa prajakiya Tantrahatu." Etle a Town Hall Now, because the author himself has given me the word town hall, I use that English word, but I translated the rest of his footnote as specially had a republican democracy. So this town hall also functioned as a court. I did not mention Nagar Mandir, you know, because, okay, that's clear. But, you know, this is an example of where he, one of the footnotes that he had that, that we kept. Now, here were some of my challenges with this particular paragraph, just the first paragraph. He has, I'm going to start with the, at the sentence, and then I'll go to the word level. His, um, his third sentence is not the longest sentence that he writes normally, but it is pretty long for a first paragraph. Now, I broke that up in my translation into two sentences. There's just no way that I could have kept that as one. It would have been too long in English. So I, I went with many were in the open field, holding their chariot reins, listening to the uproar inside. Stop. Holding massive spears in their hands, many young men were strolling about as they liked. Now, what you lose with doing that? He intentionally had the repetition of the word "many" because in a single sentence, it gave gave a different kind of rhythm. The, that repetition. When you break up the sentence in the English you lose the rhythm in fact it sounds like unnecessary repetition like okay she just used the word many in that sentence and now she's saying many again what's going on so in in fact what's rhythmic in Gujarati ends up being sounding like repetition in the English okay so that's just one example now that happened to me many times in the course of this translation of his stories in some cases I I just felt that the Gujarati rhythm was too beautiful for me to sacrifice, and I thought, let me just try. I was a young, emerging, new translator. What did I know? Let me, I thought, let me just try and keep his sentence structure and see if I can keep the rhythm. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. My editor at HarperCollins had me change some. One reviewer chose to pick one sentence out of context and, and out of context, they totally, You even when you read the review now, you see that they took it out of context and they said, oh, this sentence is badly translated without seeing potentially what might have gone on there. Translation Translators don't just sit there saying, oh, i just got to just translate this and be done. We, <laughs> we agonize over every sentence. There must have been a reason why I did what I did. If it didn't work, it didn't work. But you need to, as a critic, understand what might have been the reasons why this was translated this way. You know, so, anyways, that I'm giving that example as as to try to say, okay, look, there was this rhythm in the Gujarati. Sometimes you can bring it over, sometimes you can't. Here's another example. He was very particular, as you saw, about the use of words. He, in his Gujarati, he uses the word santhagar. He then explains, he gives you like three variations of the word. He says it's like a court, it's a nagar mandir, it's a town hall. But the choice, he made a choice to use an obscure word like Santagar, right? Very similarly, um, so so knowing that about him, knowing that he was very particular about, you know, using, if he's writing historical fiction set in ancient times, he will try to use the Prakrit or the Sanskrit word as opposed to the Persianet or the Arabic that came after the Muslim uh, rulers came to Gujarat, okay? That said, even like words like um, that, that, so, knowing that about him, I'm just saying, knowing that about him, I was also trying to be particular about when I would bring certain words into his fiction, uh, in into English. I was paying attention to the etymology. There is a there is a word here that I am still not happy with because I never found a good equivalent, and that is open field. He used kulamedan. Now. Kulamedan, if you first of all, that actually was a, a deviation for him, because Aydan, both those words have Persianate origin. In Amrapali's time, they would not have called that open field in front of the official assembly. They would not have called it Aydan, right? They would have used something like, you know how you say Ran Battlefield? Ran Kshetra? They would have called it some kind of kshetra, some kind of stan. Right? Some kind of uh, sthan or sthal. That, that it would be something sthal or something sthan or something kshetra. And he chose, he went with kulamadan, that's his choice. In the English, I was trying to find something that, that, that would work as an official gathering spot for people in front of the assembly, for the common people. I thought of arena. And I thought, you know, because that's what you have. Like in the old Roman colosseums and the gladiator rings, you have the arena. And I thought, but that doesn't sound, you know, formal enough. I ended up like I gave up. I went with open field and I hate that term because it is so not what it is. Open field is not what that thing is. This is, but so you see how it took me, like, it, it can take hours to just try to figure out. And I don't have the luxury of going and asking the author hey, you said kolamadan, I think you meant this, can I go ahead and use that word? I had to either imagine or go and do all the homework, which, you know, I was doing ethnography homework, I was doing sociology homework, I was being a historian, trying to find out things about the terms. So my point being simply, I'm just taking one paragraph and showing how much work it can be to translate one paragraph like that with a writer like Namkit
0: wonderful wonderful thank you thank you for your time Jenny. thank you very much thank you
1: well thank you for having me thank you for um, this opportunity to talk about translation which I love